Hi there, and welcome to another episode of Adventures in Angular. This week on our panel, we have Subrat Mishra. Hello, hello. Lucas Paganini. Hey. And Charles Max Wood from Top End Devs. This week we have a special guest, and that's Walid uh, Bugima. Walid, do you want to introduce yourself? Say hello. Let us know why you're famous. Hello, and thanks a lot, Charles, for the invite. Uh, my name is Walid. I'm from Tunisia. I'm working as software engineer at um, Hilti Group in France. I have been lead front-end developer at uh, Lamy Insurance Technology, Lamy Global Holding, uh, which is a fintech and insurance company. And I'm very delighted to be uh, with you guys today on the um, podcast. Yeah, absolutely. Um, now, we invited you because you wrote an article about um, basically how to write clean HTTP service methods. Um, and it's a relatively short article, but this is something that we all do with our Angular apps. And so I thought we could talk about, hey, how do I talk to my backend, right? What's painful about it? What's great about it? What's not great about it? Um, and then we could uh, dive into the, some of the tools and libraries that are out there that may make it easier. So um, I'm kind of curious because you you start with sort of the native uh, way that Angular gives you with the HTTP client module and, and and you talk about how to clean it up. So let's start there with the HTTP client module um, and talk about what people do right with it and wrong with it. And then we can move on to some of the other libraries that we may or may not be using for this kind of thing. So for people who are newer, do you want to just kind of give uh, an overview of what the HTTP client module is and does. And then we can talk about how people get it wrong. Yep, sure. Um, so HTTP client module is um, out-of-the-box module provided uh, by Angular. So if you install Angular, you don't need to uh, basically use any third-party libraries to manage your communication with the backend. Uh, it allows you to establish communication for handling CRUD operations, create, read, update, and delete. Um, like uh, communication database. Um, it basically uses observables uh, under the hood uh, to basically establish this communication. Um, I have been using um, HTTP client module since I started with Angular without using any third-party library uh, external uh, to Angular. Um, so that's almost it. Uh, it has also HTTP testing module as well. If you want to create test files for your HTTP um, um, verbs, let's say, or uh, calls to the backend. So it is like fully fledged uh, libraries inside Angular. Um, and it is very handy to basically handle communication even at large scale. Uh, it is just a matter of organizing your uh, your code uh, to basically leverage uh, this HTTP client module uh, built-in methods. Gotcha. So your article talks about an anti-pattern that that people use um, for the HTTP client. Uh, do you want to just uh, walk us through that, like what people are doing wrong, and then what you do to clean it up? Um. It is just my perspective on what is right and what is wrong. Uh, probably in large-scale projects, you wouldn't like to violate the don't repeat yourself principle or dry principle. Uh, and thus, you mm -hmm. want to have this kind of uh, encapsulated 
um, logic that is reusable um, in all your services. In probably very simple project, you have just a um, handful of HTTP calls, but in a large scale project, you probably reach 100 um, calls. Um, for instance, now in my current project, we are using GraphQL, um, but we are also using HTTP client as well. And we have a similar pattern as the one that, uh, that is available in the article. So we don't repeat ourselves in terms of handling uh, errors and managing the uh, responses from the backend. Um, so we have kind of central abstract service that does all the job and all the consumer services are basically using this service to handle um, this, this, this communication. So that allows us uh, basically uh, to have a clean code, but also uh, to have a central place uh, in which you can basically um, establish the communication. And if there is any bug or something, you know where to go. Because if you have, um, let's say, 50, 60 files of services, and all of these services have different uh, patterns of communication with the backend using a HTTP client module, um, you don't have consistency uh, inside the code base and the maintainability of the code base becomes very hard. Um, so if you have this kind of pattern that I implemented in this article, probably that would be very helpful in terms of um, uh, don't repeat yourself uh, principle, for instance. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, so that's that's one of the things that I started to notice in my old company. Um, as we were growing, we were leveraging uh, REST API, different endpoints, um, and every single developer was um, handling the backend the way he or she sees fit. Um, so I, when I looked into the code base, um, there were different um, implementations of the exact same thing which is communication with the backend, you find uh, different implementations of the get request, of the get verb, of the post verb, of the update verb. So we decided to just um, basically build uh, a service file that basically handles everything uh, communication-wise with the backend. And if you want to establish communication with a particular endpoint, you just use um, the method that are inside the service without uh, inventing the wheel. Right. So the approach is effectively to build a wrapper around HTTP client module and then have everything use that so that everything's consistent across your entire app. Exactly. Yes. Cool. Does that square with your experience, Subrat or Lucas? If I, if I remind myself, like uh, most of the HTTP client we call nowadays, uh, it's jumbled with a lot of RxJS operators. Like you, you pipe all them with uh, different different operators, and mostly, as, as you told, like we handle like suppose the get all, all the verbs of HTTP get put post delete uh, to a separate service. Just call them, and the response will be an observable, and then we pipe them uh, with the different uh, d different operator, and then subscribe that either directly as in a async pipe or or in the in the component. Yeah, but what I about the um, once while you're talking, I, one thing my came to my mind was, oh, uh, do do not reinvent the wheel or do not repeat yourself. We we use lot of in, interceptor, like yes. to handle the error. Uh, you use an interceptor and that will uh, handle the error itself. And if you want to add some uh, suppose a header 
which which will be common for a lot of calls and then then do that in a interceptor instead of uh, calling that so there are some basic uh, uh, things which can be handled by different services or different uh, in, interceptor and try to segregate them exactly i think also ng if you if some, someone starts with ngrx uh, uh, and also there's some other um, library they are kind of going on those direction like segregating the work to a particular place and uh, do what needed on 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 those places i also i had a question while i was reading your article uh, so one thing that i think needs to be clear to the audience is what are the conditions that allow you to do such thing in your code base i say that because Sometimes you just don't have access to the backend. And if the backend is not consistent in the way that they return the error messages or whatever you're abstracting, then you can't really do that. This can actually be more detrimental than helpful because it, well, I tend to, to use this for everything, which is um, developers, they are always trying to not copy and paste. And it feels the right thing to not copy and paste. But it actually depends. Because if you use the wrong abstraction, then it's you would be better off just copy and pasting. Because you'd be able to do the necessary changes that you need to make it work. So one scenario which I, I happened to be a few months ago in a project was the backend returned errors in different structures like sometimes the backend would return an error uh, wrapped in an object and uh, the error message would be in a property called error other times it would be a property called err other times it wouldn't return an object just a string with the error message so it was very inconsistent so fun yeah it was awesome yeah, yeah. and we <laughs> did not have access yeah we just couldn't do anything in the backend because we were limited in scope to the front end because, well, my company is basically an outsourcing of developers to another country so that you can have premium quality with uh, in a cheaper, in a country that has a cheaper currency, right? And so some companies just, they don't feel comfortable outsourcing their whole repository. Sometimes they just outsource the front end because the front end is something that, at the end of the day, everybody can have access to your front end. You know, you can just inspect the element and you see everything. So uh, it happens that sometimes we simply don't have access to the backend. We only have access to the front end. So we can't make the necessary changes to the backend to make it consistent in the way that it handles successes and failures. So since we can't do that, and when we have inconsistencies in the backend, we can't use an approach such as the one that you suggest. Because if we were to use this abstraction, uh, there would be places that this abstraction wouldn't work. And then we would have to go inside of it and make changes to, to allow for such edge cases. And then uh, you end up having an abstraction that is taking care of way too many scenarios. And it starts becoming a risk. Because every time that you add treatment for an edge case, you may also be handling wrong some of the other endpoints. So uh, I would say 
for everyone that is listening to this is every time that you have some kind of standard in your whole application, front end and back end, you can abstract that. But if at any point you have inconsistencies, then I would rethink that. Uh, maybe you can use an abstraction in, in if there is a common pattern. It may not be 100% consistent, but there are many endpoints that follow this pattern. Okay, so you can use an abstraction for those endpoints, but don't try to put everything in the same box. Like if there, if you don't have uh, an API call that you can use that abstraction, like just don't use it. That's okay too. I think the developers sometimes they they get too hung up on. I need to use this abstraction. I made this code to reuse everything, so I have to use this function everywhere. And that's not the case. Like you need to make your application work. Okay, that's your goal as a developer. It's just that. So if you have an abstraction that you can use, that's great. But if the abstraction doesn't fit your needs or the particular uh, endpoint that you're handling is different from the rest, that's okay too. Don't try to abstract that. You can you can always use the HTTP client directly or any other APIs that you need. So something to keep in mind. So I'm going to push back here a little bit because, and, and granted, I haven't seen this backend, right? I... I'm trying to imagine, you know, how awesome this uh, this backend is. But anyway, um, so part of the deal is that I I think you can compose um, a wrapper around the HTTP calls to a particular backend, right? So let's say it's this one that's got these inconsistent issues. Um, you can encapsulate some of that stuff so that. Um, for example, it's uh, you, you have a response handler and then you have an error handler and then you have a, right? And uh, I'm thinking more object-oriented and I know that JavaScript doesn't always lend itself that way very easily. Sometimes it does, right? Sometimes it's like, hey, this fits really neatly into the boxes that JavaScript gives me, but not always, right? But then what you do is you, um, you pass your request or your response into you know, some kind of function that just initializes an error object that's consistent and it can take all those different kinds of inputs and and give you a consistent kind of interface. And so there are ways to build these. Yeah, depending on the circumstances, it might be slightly over-engineered for what you're dealing with, right? Um, or you might have so many edge cases that it's just, yeah, you know, even that initialization is messy. Um, but what I found is that um, as, as I've, broken things up and composed things and, you know, figured out what the right responsibilities are for the right, uh, whether it's classes or prototypes or, or, you know, in TypeScript, you know, uh, different, you know, things there. Um, what I found is that, yeah, there are ways to work around this so that you can have that nice, clean, consistent um, interface. Because at the end of the day, having that driver and having that place to go for that common code is there there are huge huge benefits to it and so you know it, it's got to be just so horrendously inconsistent that it just doesn't make any sense whatsoever to count on any kind of common structure uh in order for me to not want to try and do what we're talking about here yeah i agree like it is kind of trade-off um 
because as 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 Luca mentioned it, um, sometimes the backend is not as responsive as you may expect, but it is just a matter of convention between front end and and backend to build yeah. the system the way it should be. Um, for instance, when I joined my new company, I found kind of different conventions than the ones that I have been um, in before. So I think it is just a matter of conventions, and then you can build um, the the abstraction. Um, so you need to accumulate the um, the 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 knowledge of the redundancies uh, in the system, both front end and back end, and then try to reduce them as much as possible. Um, and that's what, what we are trying to do even here um, in this new setup um, to basically build as much uh, abstraction as possible in order to leverage the dry principle um, and uh, avoid uh, replications in, in code base, knowing that we have like dozens of libraries inside in an X workspace. It is very critical to have this kind of um, abstraction. Yeah, one one other thing I'm just going to point out because I think Luca is right that there may be just a handful of edge cases don't fit, right? Yeah. That's the other side of this, right? And so if there are just those handful, right? So everything uses the the abstraction we wrote, and then yeah, there are these three or four that just you know what? There's just not a good clean way to stick them into this in, uh, abstraction, right? Then what we do is, you know, I, I hate comments in code. But I would put a comment in there explaining this has a structure that does not work with the right the interface we have. And so, you know, we're handling it here to make sure that we capture the error or whatever, right? So just give good give a good explanation in the in the code as to why you're doing it the other way. Um, exactly. And then yes. yeah, if you find that that edge case occurs in a handful of cases, then you can abstract that into a different interface. And tell people, hey, look, you know, if it's this way, it's this one, and if it's this way, it's the other one. What you can also and, and then you may be able to put a facade in front of it, even at that point, and say, you know, um, request handler, right? And then request exactly. handler is smart enough to look at the structure you get back and say, you're gonna you're gonna go through this pipeline, and you, these other ones will go through the other pipeline, and then you can clean yeah. it up that way. Um, what I was trying to say is, I just um, Charles point triggered uh, kind of um, a saying of one of my previous um, engineering managers who was basically saying like it is always to good to focus on patents patents extraction um, before like solutions abstraction so you have to extract the patents then you build the um, the solution abstraction so yeah um, something that you can also do to help on what Charles was was saying, like do those like other methods, for example, if you are in this scenario, use this abstraction. If you're in this other scenario, use this other abstraction. One thing that I really like that helps with that is to use functional programming and always break things in very small abstractions. Because for example, let's say that you're creating an abstraction for all API requests. This abstraction can be either a single function that does all the abstractions that you need, or it can be a function that internally calls others. So it's a function that is composed by other functions. So mm -hmm. the more granular you can get, 
in the responsibilities of your individual functions, the more you can reuse them. So even if you are in a terrible situation, such as the one that I found myself a couple months ago, um, you may not be able to reuse the whole abstraction everywhere, but there are parts of it that you can. So for example, if you have, if you know that a particular endpoint is going to return a string in case there's an error, you can create a function that uh, looks at the return, uh, looks at the return data from the API. And if it's just a string, treats that as an error. If mm -hmm. it's an object, returns it as success. If an, a different endpoint uh, treats errors differently. So for example, a different endpoint might return an error wrapped in an object with the property called error. Okay, then you can create an abstraction that can take the response data and see if it's an object with the error property or if it's not. If it's not, then it's success. If it is that, then it's an error message. So you can have different functions that extract the response to see if it's a success or a failure. And then you can plug that into the rest of your abstraction. So you have a part of your API endpoints abstraction that is the part of it that is responsible for identifying if the response was a success or a failure. And what you can do is, if you isolate that check into another abstraction, then you can swipe out the abstractions as you need them. So this particular endpoint, you need to use this particular error extractor. This other endpoint, you need to use another error extractor. So this way you can make your abstractions more flexible because you can also internally customize them. So that's a way to go around that. Um, and, but again, we're just talking about like a, a case that I hope most developers never get to. So I know that the case that I brought up was very, very specific. Uh, and I completely agree with what Charles said, which is there are going to be many consistent things in the backend. Even if there are many inconsistencies, there will also be many things that are consistent. So you should still create abstractions because they will benefit you. Even if you can't use them everywhere, they will still benefit you. It's just, I think it's really important to bring that up because I found myself in this trap before of, having a scenario that doesn't fit a particular abstraction and then trying to make it fit. And you shouldn't be wasting time on that. You should use the right abstraction. So if that abstraction doesn't work, either you make it more flexible in the example that I gave of uh, giving mm -hmm. an error extractor so that you can customize the way that it identifies if it was success or failure, or you can just create a different abstraction. So just don't ever waste a lot of time trying to fit your use case in the abstraction that you already have. If it fits, okay. If it doesn't, then just do something else. Yeah, I think you're presupposing a little bit that people have and take the time to refactor, right? I think that's the other piece of this, right? So yeah, you know, you're like, look, this doesn't fit. I'm going to eject. I'm going to use just the, you know, HTTP client module and I'm just going to go raw HTTP call on it. Um, what what you need to be doing then is going back and looking at that periodically and saying, is there a way that I can make this better? Because if you can make that easier to follow, make it easier to read, make it easier to reason about, then 
you get to the point where, yeah, somebody else can come along and maintain the code better. Um, I also want to point out that, Lucas, your situation was a little bit different in that I think most developers on most teams that are doing Angular are either working on a third-party back-end um, API that is reasonably consistent. Not always, right? I mean, I've worked on some third-party APIs that are really, really heinous. I've also worked on some that are just not well-documented, and that makes it hard, too. Um, but most of the time, you're either working on something like that where the API has kind of a deliberate design or you're working with a back-end team that is internal to your company. So you can go to them and say, hey, you know, um, what you're doing is making it really hard for us to maintain on the front end. And if you could standardize on these three things, it would solve a lot of our problems. And so I want to just point out that uh, in either case, communication may be your friend here, right? It may not be a technical solution. It may be a people solution. And you may just need to go talk to the people who are providing you your data and saying, hey, you know, have you thought about doing this? Because it would make it a lot easier. And if it's a third-party API and it's a solid suggestion, I mean, I, I would hope that most product companies would appreciate that. And then if it's an internal thing, you know, hopefully you have a healthy enough culture to where they just look at you and say, that that makes a lot of sense, right? We are building this to service what you're writing, so we'll solve that. But it sounds like in Lucas's case, um, those weren't really options that he could pursue aggressively. Yeah, exactly. Just probably to build on top of what Charles just was saying is the importance of documentation. Like if you are building abstractions, it is very important also to uh, document this very well. Because, for instance, when I joined the new code base, um, I found a lot of built-in abstractions inside the, the code base. And sometimes it is very hard to reason about them. And sometimes you, you just opt to use the, the native capabilities of the frameworks uh, just to leverage value as fast as possible without spending much time understanding why this person did this abstraction, right? Um, so I think like the other side is um, documentation is very important when you build abstractions. Yeah, and also like uh, just uh, thinking when when all the discussion happening is coming to my mind all the methodology all the architecture and everything is always like always depends on the situations like if you if you have an architecture or have a methodology and you have a complete different situation you can't just grab a, a methodology and put in your situation and like put in your situation and, and that you should not expect it's it going to behave uh, pretty good uh, because like like the was Lucas said in 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 his situation, like suppose there are a lot of variables are different, a lot of there's continuous back and forth is going on with the back end and front end, a lot of things. So that then it might be better to go with a normal approach. Then, but in most of the most of the scenario where we have a solid back end object, what you are getting, and uh, then we can implement uh, all those. Uh, like happy uh, happy path scenario and then you can have a lot, lot of implementation mm -hmm. by not considering the like it's kind of uh, if you're creating some uh, methodology or abstraction you are thinking like the back end uh, should give something because suppose in the front end if you are doing this dot something if, the, if that if the back end change the name of dot to something else this is going to break 
no no matter what we'll do like uh, we can't go ahead and write uh, hashtags and every day like uh, just to change uh, the name every day and just uh, talk with them so that would be a contact between the front end and back end i know in in the ideal scenario like uh, it should be there but in a lot of scenario it's it's a like um, pretty hard to get sometime so always uh, what I, i might suggest or like first check your scenario uh, of why what is the problem in your code then try to uh, solve that with a uh, better methodology or better uh, abstraction which will suit for your uh, particular use case but uh, what uh, what walid is saying i think it will uh, because i haven't uh, experienced uh, this kind of problem because fortunately i never i always worked on both side like front end mm-hmm. and back end so i have uh, the control on both but i also i know that some of my friends worked on but they always have a communication like they always have a swagger file or uh, path to check uh, what the back end gives uh, but i think i think most according to me uh, at least 90 to 95% of time while the approach will going to work but uh, some 10% might need to find a way around on that and try to fit uh, something else yeah i think the last point is very critical because also communication is important right between back end and and front end hmm. uh, i mean like it's not it's not like the technical communication um between front end code and back end code but the human communication between developers uh to establish this kind of conventions um i think there is like kind of law like conway's law uh which basically states that the design system is a mirror of the communication strategies inside the team right so if the if the communication between team members is broken then you cannot build a solid resilient system right um so you cannot build an abstraction around angular ship uh, client module if you do not have a standard um back end responses um and agreements uh on the responses shape and also i think typescript helps a lot in terms of interfaces as a convention between uh api responses and front end code so that's also a good point also to mention now one other thing that i'm curious about is do you all use the http client module to make your http calls or are you using some other third party library that gives you a cleaner nicer you know i i guess more natural to you um interface for me actually i use it to use the ship client module for a while i would say since i started with angular but with my new setup um graphql is kind of front time um um system that mm-hmm. sits between front end and back end and ship client module wouldn't work here because there is also a wrapper around the graphql um to establish communication which is uh, apollo right um so right. angular angular apollo is a very handy library that we are using here and um as far as i know the whole system is using um apollo angular uh, to handle communication with the graphql runtime and it is kind of an abstraction as well around its ship client module um and it is very clean and um it has a lot of um parts that are keen to 
to to GraphQL um, uh, system as well. Like for instance, fragments, uh, you can like make a query to the to the backend with the fragments, and these fragments can be reused in other parts of the system. So um, for me, like I was not really expecting it to be as mature as as it is, um, because I think GraphQL is kind of new to the to the ecosystem. But uh, Apollo is um, is kind of strong, and also like uh, scalable with Apollo Federation, for instance. Um, and it is like a topic that is studied now inside the company. Um, so I think it is it is also a good option to use Apollo. But inside Angular, I think there is also ng ngrx, right? Uh, with the effects, um, you can also establish communication mm-hmm. with the backend. So that's also something uh, very useful that I had the chance to to work with. Yeah, I think GraphQL alleviates a lot of these issues, right? Because um, you have to give responses back with a certain structure. Um, you can make certain assumptions about what you're going to see and how you're going to see it. Exactly. Um, and so at the end of the day, it yeah, it it solves a lot of this. And those interfaces are looked at by, you know, hundreds of developers. And they tend to, you know, be kept clean and give you specific ways of doing specific things. And so I I think it really kind of, it it obviates a lot of these problems. It just makes them not really exist. You know, you have different issues. You're making different trade-offs. But if this is your problem, you know, it makes this particular problem go away. Exactly, yes. Um, on that question, Chuck, about using or not HTTP client, I do have something something that I consider really important to say, which is even if you want to use a different abstraction because of a cleaner interface or you just prefer a different syntax, be sure that this other interface, this other abstraction internally uses the HTTP client. So for example, Walid gave the example of NGRX and also uh, Apollo Angular. I, I have never used Apollo Angular myself, but I would bet that internally it uses the HTTP client. That's important because Axios, for example, um, Axios by default uses the fetch protocol the native browser fetch protocol. And that can be a problem if you're in Angular applications because that means that you're making your requests outside of the framework. It may sound like a a small thing, for example, oh, but what am I losing? Am I just losing HTTP interceptors? I don't need HTTP interceptors, whatever. It's not just that. There are other things that Angular does and it can only do if you're using the HTTP client, because the HTTP client kind of, it's kind of, you're making an HTTP request and it's going from inside the framework. So the framework is aware of it. And one of the things that it can do, for example, besides HTTP interceptors, is if you are running your application server side too, then you will need the HTTP client. Otherwise, Angular will not know if your components are already stable and ready to be given to, uh, to the front and ready to be rendered. So in the backend, you, you will need to be using the HTTP client if you're using server-side rendering with your Angular application. And it, it can also 
serve as a caching layer. So if you are using server-side rendering in Angular, then once your requests are made in the backend, they don't have to be made again in the frontend. So when the backend gives the rendered frontend back to the client, they can already give the cached responses for the HTTP requests that it had to make. And then when the frontend loads and tries to make those calls, it just gets the cached result. So it doesn't have to make those HTTP calls again. So that's a small detail that you can only achieve if you are using the HTTP client. So it's not a problem if you prefer a different interface, a different syntax than the one that the HTTP client gives you. Just make sure that whatever abstraction you create internally uses the HTTP client so that all your HTTP calls, they go through the internals of the Angular framework and Angular is aware that you're making those calls and is aware of the responses that you got because Angular does some things with that information. Yeah, I think Lucas was uh, absolutely right uh, on on the basis of uh, if uh, like that uh, Angular is not only making a um, HTTP call, it's going through a process like in the upward and then coming back again to the to the component. Uh, but I I would suggest like I have used like where like for the Charles question to other HTTP clients. So I sometimes use fetch. Uh, directly fetch so in in those cases suppose one of the scenario is if i am calling something from the worker and i wouldn't want uh, the execution to be flow uh, then i use fetch there directly so that i need not need to pass the context and all and uh, so it will do the work and just uh, uh, get get us the result back in instead of going through the whole angular angular process and also similar case if you are de- uh, if you want to run something outside angular you don't want to run uh, the change detection uh, with it and um, i know that is rare you know, if you want to run something and you want to call the server getting it back in those scenario you can use either fetch or other uh, xhr request uh, to get registered with, without informing angular and just push your updated data to the um, angular change detection or angular uh, Angular DOM, you can say. Yeah, I think. Yeah, like, that does sound like a little extra work. Exactly. Uh, yeah, if, if it's like performance is the, yeah. If you are counting on milliseconds, then okay, then it might be. So, so you, so that's the trade you're making, right? Is performance yeah. versus yes, performance versus uh, simplicity, I guess. Hmm. Um, I was about to say like um you can even build this kind of wrappers around not only classes, but um, the verbs themselves. Like if we are familiar with Jest, for instance, uh, not Jest, uh, Nest.js, uh, which is mm-hmm. like Angular in the backend, right? They have this kind of decorators to handle backend communication. So you have at get, at put, at post, at delete. And then you just fire the observables with these uh, decorators. So I attempted actually to build this kind of decorators with um, HTTP verbs on Angular and just using the decorator pattern. And it works very well, actually. You just have um, like a function, um, name it add get or name it whatever you want. And then internally, it uses uh, HTTP client. 
Um, and then in your services and your classes, you just call this function or import it, and then you just pass the endpoint to it. And then in the uh, decorated function uh, or method, uh, you just pass the response. And it's, I think, way cleaner than basically handling this with a class wrapper around CP client module. Yep, I, I, yeah, I think uh, Nest uh, nailed it with, uh, yeah. they, I think they did this. Uh, they got uh, the concept from what I uh, got it by working in Nest is they got all the concept from Spring Boot, they all the uh, concept from Angular, uh, tried to merge them and, and uh, did, a, did a very good job. I'm going to do cool. the opposite opinion here. Uh, <laughs> sorry, but I I really tried. I really tried to use Nest because I like Angular so much that and Nest just fits so well if you're in an NX workspace, like it integrates well with all the other libraries in your monorepo that I so wanted to use it. And the documentation is so well done uh, they have so many stars. I was outshined by all the greatness of Nest, but I really didn't like using the Angular approach in the backend. And I think in my case, it's because I feel like object-oriented programming really fits well in the front end. Um, I myself don't like object-oriented programming too much. I prefer functional programming, but I I try to be pragmatic in my choices, and it feels like object-oriented programming really fits well in components. Like when you are thinking, you when you have the mental model of a component, you think of a component having state. So this, to me, is an indicator that object-oriented programming works well for components. Like I think of a class when I'm thinking of a button, when I'm thinking of a card component, it really makes sense. But when I'm in the backend, I feel like functional programming works best. It's easier for me to understand the flow of the application. If you're in the front end, for example, there are way too many scenarios for you to interact with something. You can have three buttons, and those three buttons can activate the same action. The backend, you don't really have that too much. You generally have one endpoint that does what you need. If you need that thing, you call this endpoint. So um, just feels like using functional programming in the backend feels like the right choice, to me at least. And Nest didn't provide me with ways to use functional programming in the backend. Even though in the docs they say that they are um, object-oriented and reactive functional programming, I feel like they are much more object-oriented than functional programming-oriented. And this was really hard to me, so I really tried using that. Everybody from my team hated it, <laughs> to be honest. Right from the start, they were like, Really, I don't think this is the right pattern here, but I was like, no, let's try it. Let's try more. And we really pushed after all the hate and the hate just stayed there. I thought it would it would slow down while people get used to it, but we just didn't get used to it. Uh, it always felt like the wrong approach for 
back in. So I'll, that was my experience with Nest. If you're listening to this and you are getting very angry at me, I'm sorry. I tried. <laughs> well, I, I think that's the wonderful thing about programming is that yeah. we all have different things that we like. Uh, the other thing is, is you may have picked up something that, you know, it's like, I'm going to build this in Nest and it's just not a good fit for Nest, right? <laughs> I mean, there are a million reasons why it it may or may not have worked for you. But I mean, that's the great thing is, you know, it's like, hey, this just, you know, um, I just, my my mental model and Nest's mental model just don't jive. And so I'm going to use something else. And that's awesome, right? We have so many other good options, you know, like Rails. Uh, which is exactly. my back end of choice, right? I, I love writing in Ruby, you know, or you may want to go pick up um, Express or Sales or something else in JavaScript, right? Because that's your cup of tea and they all work and it's cool. So, yeah. Um, I mean, I would recommend it to anybody if you're doing Angular to at least try it, right? And then from there, you can say, you know what? Th this one's not for me, right? No harm done, but yeah. For me, like from my experience with Angular, when I wanted to try um, the backend work, um, NASGS was the smoothest um, transition possible for me towards backend. Um, even though like Angular is kind of object oriented, um, shifting towards Spring Boot or Java is kind of uh, painful compared to NASGS. Um, at least the same mental model. Um, inside Angular is is, is, is in uh, NestGS. Uh, so I did not really find it difficult to build uh, API endpoints with, with NestGS. Um, the same concept, the same design patterns, decorators, the singleton, you inject the service entire constructors. So it was exactly the same if you have kind of um, familiarity with Angular. NestGS is, uh, from my perspective, a good option to try um, in the backend. A good framework, bad framework, uh, it's always a debate. Yeah, so. <laughs> yeah one yeah. thing that I will say, though, about backends relative to our discussion over HTTP calls and things like this is that certain, you know, and I like Express is a little more freeform in my opinion, right? You can kind of give a response yeah. back that looks like anything, um, you know, and then like Rails, they give you a default where everything looks, all of your responses are going to have the same format. Right. And and others, you know, or somewhere in between. And so that's another thing just to keep in mind. And some of them also like I think there are some libraries in Express that actually um, sit on top of it and kind of push you toward a consistent format in your responses. And so, um, you know, however you put that together, just keep in mind that, yeah, there are libraries and or frameworks for the back end that are going to make the the front end, back end consistency, you can start making a whole bunch of assumptions about what it looks like and what it's going to do under certain circumstances so that you're getting what you expect. And then um, the other thing that I would uh, push to is, um, and I've done this especially when I was consistently getting responses from a back end on my front end that I, that, that I couldn't you know, I didn't expect it to be, or it was changing on a regular basis because the back end team was working on that particular endpoint and change stuff or change the structure of the objects it was giving back or what have you. 
is I've actually written API tests for my back end and put them into my test suite and then just run them every week or something so that I have that consistent feedback. Oh, this changed. I got to fix it right before it becomes a um, customer calling up and going, hey, it doesn't work anymore. Right. And so, I mean, there are things you can do to mitigate a lot of these things um, from the back end and the front end side. Um, and don't be afraid to go reach for some new library tool technique idea and, you know, and implement it either through testing or, um, you know, some kind of convention in your code. And that connects really well with our last podcast episode, which was with Marek. So if you haven't listened to the last episode after you finish this one, go check it out Mm -hmm. because we talked about how to break your front end into smaller pieces. And one of the pieces that we suggested was an API client. So it's a part of your front-end application that has the singular responsibility of connecting the front-end to the back-end. So that's the perfect place for you to do integration tests and make sure that your calls to the back-end are being done to the correct endpoint, that you are treating errors correctly, that the data structure that you're getting from successful responses is correct. So go check out this episode because it links really well with everything that we're discussing here. Yeah, and uh, I guess uh, about uh, what Walid also mentioned a little before, like and uh, trying to adapt the annotation uh, to the different verbs. So like to touch, I think that will be a good, uh, would like to touch a little more on that. Mm-hmm. Like Walid, if you can explain like how you came um, on approach on that, like, and, and how it helps you to mitigate, reduce the lines of code um, in, in a code base because that's uh, sound, like sounds good for me because you don't need to create multiple service just create exactly. annotate past the past the URL and exactly yes so as I mentioned like since I tried Nest.js, um one of the main differences between Nest and Angular is the usage of the method decorators like get put. Um, decorators. So I said, like, probably this is possible um, with Angular, and knowing like the decorators is just TypeScript pattern, and you can probably build a function like this and then use it with this HTTP client module, and then you decorate uh, a particular method inside your classes, and you don't need to make um, injection of services with a singleton pattern. You rely on the decorator pattern, and you have, like, probably one file that uh, exports um, these functions uh, like at get, at delete, at put, at, at I, like, and then use just use or import these functions inside your consumer files or components directly, and then you fire the HTTP uh, requests from the components themselves without uh, relying on the service. Um, so I tried that and it worked well, but I did not try it in production code base, um, mm-hmm. but it is just kind of inspiration from from Nest. And I was just wondering why probably this is not an option inside Angular. Um, Knowing like... I was about to ask that, yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I think a lot of options are there. Maybe uh, people, what might uh, come to my mind right right now is uh, 
uh, we do we, we, we not only pass the only the URL sometimes we pass a lot of um, verbs like uh, HTTP headers and some keys mm-hmm. yes. and those things that might might be different for different methods and different uh, different calls uh, might be that uh, to making a common annotation uh, for all or or we can create multiple annotation like what we do in nest and just add 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 and then then we'll get a, a bunch of annotation and that will pass the whole uh, whole process yeah um there is kind of evolution inside the framework the last two releases i think they introduced the inject function for instance you don't need mm. to basically inject your services in the constructor right um, you use just the inject function and I see kind of evolution towards more functional programming inside Angular uh, more than object-oriented, right? Um, even the routers now are kind of uh, functional. Uh, you don't your guards this way. You can just inline declare function and, and handle the, the option of having these decorators. I just same net nest you can share your modules and those things are there, but I think uh, Angular also doing standalone components. So Angular is kind of going towards functional as you told. I think a lot of uh, I think if I remember Java is also trying to so all every every framework is also trying to up uh, uh, like adapt functional functional way of programming because. Uh, that's how it makes uh, a lot of things easier. Instead of going strictly object-oriented, you can create function, pass it around, and do a lot of things with it. And it also doesn't have to be one or the other. I use yes. a lot of functional programming Good. inside Angular, inside classes. Mm-hmm. Like There are methods in your classes that can be reused. So sometimes you have many different components that have a particular method that can be isolated in a function. So there you can see the two patterns coming together. You can isolate a particular class method in a function and reuse that. So I I am personally really happy with how with the direction that things are going in all languages. I think that functional programming is indeed the right path to to all all languages and for modern software development. I just, I think there's way too much to to make more popular yet inside functional programming because um, we still talk about functional programming just inside the scope of creating small functions. And this is, well, one of the main benefits, but it goes so much deeper than that, like way, way, way more deeper than that. And then you have the more beginner level, which is, oh, it's map, filter, and reduce. Also, not just that. It goes way deeper than that. Then you have intermediary level, which would be like trying to keep everything immutable using const, uh, using data structures that allow you to have immutability. But still, that, there's just so much more, so much more than that. Uh, And if people really understood all the different patterns that functional programming gives us, um, I think that you you really can't go back. After you see the level of abstraction that you can have with functional programming, 
you really can't go back to any other styles of software development. You get hooked into that. It's so much easier after you get the hang of it. But just like Angular, it's a very steep learning curve. If you get any functional programming book, um, not going to say any because there's there are too many things in the universe, but most of them, they do I.O. at the end because I.O. is a monad and it's difficult to explain what's a monad. So they start with a lot of other things, but they don't teach you how to do a hello world because hello world is super difficult in functional programming because it means that you need side effects and side effects are difficult. So it's a steep learning curve because of that. But if you, oh man, if you go through it, it is worth it. I really recommend. Awesome. All right, I'm going to push us toward uh, picks here. We've been talking for almost an hour, um, and I think we've pretty well covered this. Um, real quick, Waleed, if people want to follow you on social media or GitHub or things like that, where do you typically hang out? GitHub. Um, same, my name, uh, Walid Bogima. Um, handler is on Rails. Um, for LinkedIn, it is Walid Bogima as well. Um, aside from these two, I am always on either Slack or Teams uh, for internal purposes. But these are my two public profiles. Awesome. Well, if you want to uh, put those into the forum, we'll make sure that those wind up in the show notes um now um i'm gonna stop telling people that this is a new segment and i'm just gonna go for it um you know we're gonna do the self-promotion what are you working on stuff lucas why don't you start us off okay um the fact that i'm starting the self-promoting section always feels like i'm the salesperson but <laughs> anyway, <laughs> I'll, I'll start it next time then. I'm sorry. I, I, I always just pick the person on the end. That's not me. <laughs> That's okay. I don't mind. But it, it is funny. Um, I am going to promote the same thing that I promoted last time, which is my web animations course. I am really pumped about this course. Uh, today, I'm going to record two more lessons to it. So it's not ready yet. Uh, but there is a waiting list. So if you go to lucaspaganini.com slash web animations, you can join the waiting list and guarantee a discount price when it gets launched. And basically, I am covering transitions and animations in the web from in CSS and JavaScript. So I'm starting things with no libraries, just the native technologies, what you can accomplish with just native CSS and JavaScript, and really going deeper into web animations because I think most web developers, some point in their careers, they have done some kind of transition uh, in the front end. But most developers don't have a strong mental model of how that works. So this is the gap that I'm trying to fill, really giving you the right mental model so that you understand how transitions and animations work in CSS and JavaScript. And then if you have that strong mental model, then you can create whatever you want with it. So there's that, and there's also a lot of practices, a lot of exercises, 
a lot of them I'm just putting them for free on YouTube. So I'm releasing, for example, uh, let's do a switch toggle animation. Let's do uh, a different card hover animation. So I'm putting those kinds of tutorials on YouTube. But if you want a step-by-step -step learning process, you can check out this course on web animation. So just go to lucaspaganini.com slash web animation so that you can join the waiting list and guarantee a discount price when it launches. Awesome. How about you, Subrat? Yeah, I would like to promote my YouTube channel, which is uh, Fun of Heuristic. So please go and check that. I know I haven't posted a video since the last six months. So finally, I, I did um, last Monday. So go and check check the video. And I'm promising you guys I will keep continue posting video now onwards. Uh, yeah, well, for now, this will I will promote this. Awesome. Um, I'm going to throw out. So I just finished. Uh, putting together the raw videos for the resume course. Um, and I've, I've been talking to a bunch of people. They're either stuck and they're trying to find some place that'll uh, take better care of them, I guess. Or you're seeing a lot of big companies here in the U.S. that are laying people off. Or people are quitting Twitter because they don't like Elon Musk or for other reasons. Um, I'm not going to dive into the politics of that. But, you know, if you're looking for another place to be, um, the course covers... Um, cover letters and resumes and it it's a little bit different approach from what most people do so i'll just give you kind of the elevator pitch most people what they do is they go on a job board they look around they see what's out there um they put together a resume that they think will get them an interview and then they blast it to everybody on the job board and the problem is is that what you wind up doing is you wind up sending out resumes that aren't really optimized to get you an interview with any one particular company and so what I, what I walk you through in the course is effectively um, how to... Uh, so I give you my resume and the template that I use. And then I walk you through how that's put together. And then I walk you through, hey, here's how you build that baseline resume that everybody blasts everybody and their, their, their mother. And then what you, I walk you through is how to research the companies you're applying to and you can do it in about 10 minutes. You can get a pretty good feel for who they are and then effectively how to use the information that you're picking up in order to write a resume that includes the stuff that you know they're looking for and then how to write a cover letter that puts your best foot forward and also explains to them how you are the person that fits the kind of person they're trying to hire. And that, that one piece in the cover letter is really hard to put across in the resume. And so, or the CV, people call it a CV too, um, if you're wondering what a resume is. But anyway, um, so yeah, so the, the point is, is effectively then you've got a resume that gives people all of the qualifications you have for their job and allows them to tick the boxes like you have a college career or you have 10 years of experience. And then you give them the cover letter that explains, I am a really good fit for your company and here's why. And your company's a really good fit for me, and here's why. And if you can explain those two things in your cover letter, then you are in a much better position because then they know that you're interested and they can start to validate that you are a good fit. So anyway, uh, go to topendevs.com slash courses. It's listed right there. Um, I'm working on the, the Keep Current and Learn Quickly 
course now. Um, so you can pre-order that and then get the lessons as they come out. Um, if you just want my resume template, here's the last one. Uh, you can get, just go to topendevs.com slash resume and you can get the, it'll just email you the, the template. So anyway, and that's free. So yeah, that's what I got. Walid, what are you working on? Um, actually, most of my time is dedicated to my enterprise level work. But aside from this, I'm focusing on writing new articles on Medium. Um, one topic that is key to my heart is Core Web Vitals and mm-hmm. Web Performance. Mm-hmm. So I have a draft right now on Medium. It is not published yet. Um, but this is a very critical topic, uh, especially for, for e-commerce projects. Um, I'm currently part of a team that works on an e-commerce project that um, significantly contribute to the um, uh, to the company um, um, financial situation uh, and income. Um, so it generates a couple of billions. Uh, so every single second matters. Um, so that's one of the topics that I'm working on right now and trying also to um, make more research on on them, um, knowing that it's not really enough to build resilient, strong, secure applications, but they should be also blazingly fast because mm-hmm. uh, you can lose customers in a matter of seconds. So this is a very good um, topic that is not really well covered uh, in terms of blog posts uh, as far as I research it now. Um, so I think if uh, this blog post gets out uh, to map the gap between Angular and Core Web Vitals, that would be great. So that's what I'm focusing on right now. Awesome. Then there are also a... episode. Go ahead. Let me see. What I'm saying, then we'll have... <laughs> oh, yes. <laughs> With pleasure. Yeah. 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 Right. Um, yeah, we, we did some episodes on JavaScript Jabber about Core Web Vitals. So we might get some of the Google engineers to come on and do that that's a really good idea to talk about it within the context of Angular and how that works. But yeah, cool. Let us know when those uh, articles are up and we'll let people know about them. All right, well, let's get to the picks. Um, Lucas doesn't want to go first anymore. So Subrat, what are your picks? Yeah, I think this week I have uh, looking on to the book called uh, Clean Code. I think it's um, a pretty famous book uh, uh-huh. how it should... Uh, learn and i also watch a video of the author of clean code and uh, like how he explained why we need to write and that's that is uh, that is good like the approach this that's uh, what he's saying is if you don't write clean code politicians will come inside and they will make some rule how you're gonna code and it will be bad uh, so just go watch the video if i think it's pretty easy to search in internet and just have a look on a book called Clean Code. Very cool. We're actually reading Clean Architecture for the book club uh, for mm-hmm. Top End Devs. So feel free to join us. Uncle Bob is going to be there tonight as we record this. He came to the first one, and I think he's going to come to the rest of them. Um, and you can go sign up at topendevs.com slash book club. Um, Lucas, what are your picks? My pick will be uh, Reaper. This is um, a free-to-use audio editing software 
that I am actually using right now to record my microphone. And I just really like that it works in all platforms. So all of you Linux fans, you can also use that. You don't get stuck in the environment of using Logic if you're in macOS. And then if you hand that off to your videographer or audio editor, they might be running Windows and this might not work. So Reaper is a really good software for audio editing and you can just use it for free if you want to. So this is going to be my pick number one. My pick number two is going to be, if you're a perfectionist, do a podcast. I have improved so much my perfectionism since I joined this weekly podcast. You have no idea. Like the, It's funny because you don't know the behind the scenes of my mind, Chuck, but when you invited me to be the co-host, I was calm and saying, oh yeah, sure, that would be awesome, thank you. But internally, in my mind, I was like, holy shit, that's gonna be live content. Like, if I say something wrong, I won't be able to <laughs> edit that later. I mean, what what if I say something completely wrong? Oh my God. And <laughs> so doing this podcast has helped tremendously. I'm even producing way more content than before. Uh, I was polishing my content way too much. I have a video on Angular 15 to be released for three more weeks now. And it started by, let me try to put it to do a three minute video. And then it became a 20 minute video with animations and like every single thing that is new in Angular. And I always do that. I I get something and I just can't rest until it is really, really, really high quality, which can seem like a good thing, but it's actually not because there's a point where the quality is already high enough that you should focus more on like outputting more content instead of just trying to polish something eternally. <coughs> Avatar movie. But yeah, uh, that's a good example. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, sometimes you just got to put out the movie in less than 10 years of difference, you know? Um, so yeah, I would highly recommend if you're a perfectionist, it doesn't have to be a podcast, but something that is live and it's going to be published for everybody to see. And you do that in a frequent basis. So every week or I think every week is better. So if you have some kind of, Thing that you create content every week in a live format that helps so much to reduce perfectionism and just get things done. So that's my last pick. Awesome. Um, I'm going to go ahead and throw out my board game pick. Um, so it's called The Game, the card game. Yeah, it's a terrible name. It's like it's like code written in code. Uh, it's it's the it, but the name of the game is the game, and uh, what it is is you um, you have cards numbered one to a hundred, um, and it's a relatively simple game. But what you do is you I'm trying to find it on Board Game Geek, but um. Yeah, it's hard to search for on Board Game Geek because the name sucks. Uh, but anyway, 
I'll find it. But anyway, because I want to tell you what the weight is on Board Game Geek. But uh, oh, here we go. So anyway, what you do is you you have uh, like two or three basically lanes of cards, and you can uh, start them at one or one hundred. And then you stack cards on and you can stack cards that um, count up, you know, so you can put cards that are higher than the number if you started at one or lower than the number if you started at at, uh, 100. And then what you do is there are certain rules like you can put a card that is exactly 10 lower, 10 higher than the other card and stuff like that. And so, you, you know, if you manage to skip a number right so let's say you skipped 93 right you hit 96 and then 92 um and then you have 88 then you put 98 on and you can you know you can keep counting down or up and the whole point is a cooperative game and you're trying to get all of the cards placed um takes about 20 minutes i played it with a couple of my friends it was super fun super fast we played it like three or four game uh times in a row um board game geek rank, rates it as a weight of 1.25 so it's a really really simple game uh definitely a game that i could play with any of my kids um uh, my my youngest might have a little bit of struggle with the um strategy right when to put what card where right and oh that that's too big a jump to go from 53 to 33 but other than that, that's kind of where you go. And you're drawing the cards as you go. So sometimes you don't have a choice but to make a bad play. But yeah, there are those other ways of uh, mitigating, you know, going back or trying to put the cards on another stack. So um, anyway, that that's my pick this week is the game. And then um, another pick I have, this is something that I'm just moving things to now. So the podcasting setup that we're using at the moment is something that I built in in rails. Right. And, uh, it works pretty well. I'm, I'm actually really, really happy with it. It's, uh, it does everything I want, right? Well, it eventually it will do everything I want, but right now it does a lot of the things that I want that I just couldn't get out of any other system. But we are looking at moving to red circle for our media hosting. And so I'm going to pick them if, you know, uh, Lucas talked about starting a podcast. Um, by the way, I am planning on launching in the first quarter of next year a podcast course. I guess we're not doing self-promo. Anyway, podcastplaybook.com is where that's going to be at. Um, but anyway, um, so yeah, they're they're doing the media hosting and uh, they're going to manage the RSS feeds. The The thing that's nice about them that I didn't really want to build is they do the um, automatic ad insertion. And so um, if I have, let's say that we're doing Top End Devs uh, Conference next month, right? And I want to promote that or I put out the podcast course, right? Um, I can I can put the ad in and I can tell it to insert it in all of our back episodes. And so if somebody decides, I'm going to listen from number one to number 567, I think is what we're on on JavaScript Jabber, right? It, it, it'll put it in there and they'll get current ads, right? For current products right and so then if i have a sponsor from five years ago that goes out of business it's not a you know it's not a dead link right and uh anyway so that's 
that that's something that I'm kind of excited about. And then the other thing is, is I do want to pick our Slack. You go to topendevs.com slash Slack. You should be able to get into the Slack channel um, and you can chat with us. And uh, yeah, I love getting feedback from people. So I'm going to pick that as well. And then, um, yeah, I've gotten into this game on my phone. That's probably a giant waste of time, but I'm going to pick it too. It's called Disney Mirrorverse. And so they've got the Disney characters, except they're slightly different, right? Because they're from alternate dimensions. And uh, you do battle. And it's it's a pretty mindless game, but I'm enjoying it. So I'm going to pick that. All right, Waleed, what do you got? What are you going to pick? Um, currently, um impressed by one of the books that I recently bought um, when I landed in France. It's Team Topologies by Matthew Skelton and Manuel Pace. It basically discusses how communication inside teams produces a certain system design patterns, I would say, like how the user experience is shaped by the communication strategies inside teams and organizations. Um, which is very critical to my position now inside the company because um, working in a large-scale project is not the same as working in startups and the communication strategies are not the same. So for me, this is a new topic and this book is uh, great in exploring these ideas. So it is highly recommended for anyone who is interested in working in large-scale uh, enterprises and projects. Um, the second pick is Fundamentals of Software Architectures by Mark Richards and um, Neil Ford. Um, that's a very important book for me as well. So I'm trying to sneak into the uh, topic of uh, team topologies and software architectures uh, stemming from front-end development. Um, all these problems in front-end development are uh, are not exceptions. They are software development problems. And these books are basically addressing them uh, very deeply. So I'm focusing currently on exploring these, these areas uh, that are not really implementation um, uh, related, but they are more kind of um, system design thinking and um, more abstract things um, than concrete implementations. So I highly recommend these two books. And uh, yeah, I finished it, I think, Fundamentals of Software Architectures, and I'm halfway through the Team Topologies book, and um, I cannot recommend them enough. All right, cool. Well, um, thanks for coming, Waleed. This was really fun. It was a pleasure for me, and yeah, it was really fun, and we touched a lot of uh, critical points in front-end development with Angular. Uh, I guess there is no production-ready application that doesn't use HTTP client. Um, so that was a really nice topic to explore. Thanks a lot. Mm -hmm. All right, we'll wrap up here. Till next time, folks, Max out. <laughs> <laughs>